welcome to another episode of uh, Room 1710. I have a very special guest with me. I have uh, Dr. Peter Stout of the Houston Forensic Science Center. He is the CEO and the president for about five years now, is it? Almost six. Almost six. Head wow. nerd, I think is the preference. <laughs> Head nerd. Hey, that's, that's a pretty good title to have nowadays. So... I guess, can you tell us, like, you know, what does the CEO and the president of the Forensic Science Center do? In other laboratories around the country, I would be called the director. Uh, it's president and CEO because of the kind of unusual structure that Houston Forensic Science Center is as what's called a local government corporation, uh, meaning I am a corporate officer. I have legal authority to bind the corporation in contracts, things like that. That's why the title is president and CEO. But yeah, head nerd. (laughs) All things scientific, HR, finance, policy, plumbing, electrical, that that stops with me. It's all that. And how did you get interested in this field? Uh (laughs) Um, So my course into forensics, it's taken me a long time to understand why forensics. Um, but I grew up in a neighborhood that ironically had a mafia war in it. Yeah. So when I was three years old, one of the neighbors took two shotgun blasts in the face, uh, retribution, the house down the street that was the offending family, their house got blown up. There was another shooting in there. So that's what I grew up with. And then when I was seven, my grandfather was murdered and my grandmother was beaten most to death completely separate unrelated to that um out of that there was a young woman who was ostensibly in the truck with the guy who likely was the murderer he never testified never talked to the police because he broke into his ex-wife's house later that day and she shot him dead so he never talked to the police but it is really unclear when we look back at the evidence that the young woman was convicted on, because she was convicted of murder. Mm-hmm. It's evidence that we would look back at now and go, I think that might have been a wrongful conviction. Very poor forensic evidence. Um, so my life has been pretty well completely altered by criminal justice system, violent crime. Um, my family's reaction with all of that tragedy obviously was difficult and that left me vulnerable when I was about seven to a predatory kid in the neighborhood that sexually abused me for a couple of years. And so I kind of, it is a series of events that certainly was traumatic, but I think it very much formed my desire to see why this stuff is so important. Absolutely. It formed my understanding of how many people in our country, that's their life. And they weren't nearly as fortunate as I was of the framework and the people that came into my life that allowed me to not be, you know, that's that's the setup to be some drug-addled derelict on the street. I'm not. Fortunately, because of people like my wife, um, but 
that kind of trauma destroys people, destroys society. What can we do about that? Well, these laboratories are part of what produces the objective information that lets people believe the justice system is going to treat them fairly. Uh, so I guess that's my reaction to it was to end up in this this line of work. Yeah, yeah, I can see that you just kind of wanted to be a, I guess, kind of a superhero to everybody because, <laughs> yeah, you know, what happened to you wasn't solved. And so I can see why it's probably right. important to you while things are, you know, solved and done correctly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's, that's a huge story. So how did you land the job uh, for the CEO in President? My background, setting aside all the traumatic parts, um, I've got a bachelor's in biology, I've got a master's in engineering, and I have a PhD in toxicology. My wife said, get a real job. Uh, <laughs> so I showed her, I, I, got, I joined the Navy. Um, so now she's a Navy wife and reminds me often that she was in the Navy as well. Uh, <laughs> but I actually, I joined the Navy because of their drug testing program. So I, I basically, I was a narc for the Navy. I ran How old were you when you went to the Navy? Remind me uh, let me think. Cause I had, I had a PhD before I went into the Navy. Wow. Right. Okay, yes. I did that. I did that backwards. So that is not the typical path. Yeah. No, I get this. <laughs> Most people join the Navy to have them pay for the PhD. I joined at the PhD to then yeah, join the Navy. You did it completely different. Yeah, I did it backwards. So I was I was 20, 28, 29. No. Maybe I was 25. Man, where was that? Probably was about 25, roughly when I joined the Navy. Um, and I, I served one tour active. Then I was executive officer and technical director for one of the Navy's drug screening laboratories. So it was a lab that ran about a million samples a year, Navy and Marine personnel, east of the Mississippi, Atlantic Fleet. Mm-hmm. And it is it is a criminal offense in the military to test positive for drugs. And that military drug testing program is what ultimately gave rise to civilian uh, workplace drug testing. Um, so I served... One tour there, separated from active duty, and then I ran a um, commercial laboratory. I was an assistant director in a commercial laboratory in Nashville, Tennessee, that did workplace drug testing, sports doping control, uh, some seized drug analysis. Left that company and then went to a not-for-profit research institute in North Carolina, where I had a program there that did laboratory accreditation for workplace drug testing labs manufactured proficiency testing materials that test laboratories ability to get the get the answers and we had research programs in a variety of things in forensics and so i was there for about 10 years um and honestly i saw an ad for this position and in the forensic world everybody knows about houston houston is the archetype of Forensic gone wrong. The, the, yeah. the failed laboratory. Yeah, definitely it, at the time. Yeah. It was very bad. Um, so the the possibility of being part of something very different, of trying to rectify a, a failed laboratory, was intriguing, to say the least. Okay. Um, Have you ever been in a situation like that to where, you know, like 
a lot of things were going wrong within the workplace that you were working at, or this was just a, just a challenge that you just kind of wanted to. And it was just a challenge. Okay. Uh, it, it really, you don't find those opportunities often in life yeah. to be at the start of a framework that actually was different enough to maybe have a chance of succeeding. I think there are a lot of laboratories out there. There's a lot of institutions out there that have had serious difficulties and no one's ever really quite been willing to go far enough to actually set up the conditions that it might be able to succeed. Why do you think that is, if you had to guess? And actually, a lot of people have asked me, you know, what, why, why did this happen in Houston? And also, what has happened in Houston? Could that be replicated elsewhere? And yeah. In fact, I've talked with other states about this. I mean, it's, it's, it's a common question. Houston, I think, is both fortunately and unfortunately a little bit unique. <laughs> At the time stuff was going wrong in Houston, one, the things that went wrong here are not unique to just Houston. Things that went wrong here have gone wrong in laboratories all over the country. But Houston is an enormous city. It's an enormous visibility. It's a very aggressive press market. Um, so the visibility on what was going wrong was much larger than elsewhere in the country. There were some very high-profile exonerations. Um, Josiah Sutton, George Rodriguez are, are the two that are probably the most known. And those exonerations were very, their, their wrongful convictions were very directly linked and very easily see how the laboratory failure resulted in their incarceration. Absolutely. That's not quite as clean in other circumstances. The city of Houston at that point in time was having to, they were on the hook for the compensation for those exonerations. Mm -hmm. That was the city council was having to rate those checks and they were big checks. Those conditions even in Texas don't really exist now because now those, the compensation for wrongful convictions is something that comes from the state, not from the municipality. Okay. Um, so there's something very different between the kind of failing of the laboratory in Houston and then what's happened in Austin. So Austin has not gone nearly as far as Houston did in trying to set up the conditions for the laboratory. Austin has now subsequently taken the laboratory out of Austin PD and made it a separate um, city department, but hasn't gone quite as far as where Houston did. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, is Austin early in the process? Or Austin, Austin is kind of early in the process okay. of making that transition. I think they just transitioned the laboratory out of Austin PD last summer. I guess about when it was. So it's it's not, it's probably not even quite a year that it's been its own city department. And since we're, you know, still kind of the pandemic, it right. makes it even harder. Right, it makes it even harder. Yeah, but it's good that, you know, Austin has, you know, a model like Houston to kind of look at because um, I remember reading when you came <coughs> in, all the problems that were going on, uh, understaffed, mm -hmm. um, I guess the training, uh, with the evidence, you know, there was there was a lot of things that were going on and it seemed like, you know, when you came in, stepped in, you really just changed the whole culture. 
it is a long, painful process. <laughs> I don't think I can claim credit for changing the culture entirely because it is a long process. And honestly, the process started even before the formation of HFNC. Yeah. I, I have to give HPD an awful lot of credit because, yes, the laboratory was a, a, a failing laboratory under HPD. But they also were really were the genesis of the idea of taking the laboratory out of HPD, putting it someplace else. They came up with that idea. They have been extraordinarily supportive of trying to do something different with the lab. And this is where I say the conditions here in Houston were fortunate that I'm not sure there are too many places in the country where you've got quite the suite of failure at such the scale as Houston. But also, unfortunately, I don't think you've got that the, subsequently the support to do something different because it was so painful here. Everybody was willing to say, okay, anything's better than this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and willing to bear the pain that it takes to actually make the change. And I think a lot of other places that have had serious problems in their laboratory, they aren't as willing to tolerate the very painful process that it is to try and repair. Yeah, because I think before you came, wasn't it? I think they had to kind of revamp things. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think back in 2002, maybe 2004, and then again in 2009. Yes. Yeah. There, there were in in. I I usually lay it out. 2003, there was a New York Times headline: mm -hmm. "The Worst Crime Lab in the Country." Yeah. Um, and in that range was the beginnings of people understanding the depth and breadth of the problems. Um, to HPD's credit, they tried to improve things. They got laboratory accredited between 2003 and about 2012. But in that decade, they kept having failures. They kept having setbacks. They yeah. kept having to shut parts down. They kept struggling with things. And they spent a decade in the news, Oof. which is, is rough. Yeah. That's it's very difficult to work in those circumstances. Yeah. Um, so that was finally what really in about 2012 under Anise Parker, where they finally said, okay, this, we got to do something radically different here yeah. and set up this very different circumstance, which then took over the management responsibility in 2014. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is just, I guess, not even quite seven years. In this, because it's April of twenty, April of twenty fourteen is when HFSC really took yeah. operational responsibility. And one thing that kind of really made me pay attention to just like you know the crime going going on was just I just remember you know hearing in the news like you know this is last year and how the crime rate just excuse me the crime rate kind of doubled compared to last year. And this is like, as soon as, you know, everything was starting to kind of in the process of opening up mm -hmm. and everything just doubled in, you know, I'm, I, I've been in Houston my whole life. And so I've never seen those type of numbers. So it was just like a big scare. And so, I mean, do you know kind of like what has been the cause? There are lots of people scratching their head of 
why the violent crime rate has jumped. Yeah. Uh, we started noticing an increase in requests that were coming to us in May of 2019. It's kind of the start of where we saw So it was pre-pandemic. Okay, it was pre-pandemic. Okay. There is something in this the pandemic unquestionably has made the whole thing worse. No, no question. Yeah. But there's more going on here than just pandemic. And I'm not sure I have heard of really complete explanation. I'm not sure anybody has a complete understanding of why violent crime has continued, started increasing and has continued to increase. This year has continued to increase over last year. Yeah. I guess someone who's just kind of not, you know, educated on the science. Uh, one of the things that came across my mind was, you know, of course, when you think about crime, drugs are linked. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, you know, with certain drugs, you know, probably the ingredients change, you know, you really never know what's going on. And so maybe my guess, they made things cheaper. Uh, just because they lost a lot of money when everybody was inside, and then that caused a whole bunch of people's brain to kind of just could react be. different. Okay, could be. could be. So could be. We have seen in the last three years, we have seen methamphetamine go from the number three drug that we identified to the number one drug. Forty plus percent of what we identify in drug materials is methamphetamine, um, and this is more than just here in Houston, meth and fentanyl have taken over. Uh, and you, you think what may be driving that, both of those are laboratory derived. They aren't dependent on a crop out there someplace. They can be made in a lab and they're cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And they are, they grab hold of your brain like few things grab hold of your brain and they don't let go. Yeah, it's very tough. And so I guess um, I guess my question would be is just have y'all experienced like many labs within Houston that y'all have kind of, you know, uh, during y'all's investigation and kind of seen stuff or if you, I guess you can just kind of tell, you know, what have you seen going on, if anything? What have we seen going yeah. on in terms of crime rate or patterns or what? I'm not quite sure. What uh, well, my, my question was dealing with drugs, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, or yeah, yeah. Dealing with drugs. Okay. I mean, that, that was that question. Drugs in Houston. Yeah. Uh, like I say, methamphetamine is in everything. Uh, top three drugs, methamphetamine, cocaine, and I, marijuana's there, but yeah. marijuana in the last two years is weird because two years ago, the Texas legislature in passing their industrial hemp bill broke prosecuting marijuana. It was, I'll say it was unintentional. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. It certainly was ill-considered in the implications of passing that bill. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, I, I can't say marijuana is the third most prevalent drug. I can say it's the third most prevalent thing we identify. Mm -hmm. Really, the third most prevalent thing we identify are pills. Um, Houston and Texas have not historically had a heroin issue. They have had a pill issue. Uh, some of the biggest pill mills in the country, uh, 
late 90s, early 2000s, the pain management explosion in the country and these clinics that catered to pain management, mm -hmm. really they were prescription mills and pill mills. They, they cranked out opioid doses and they laid the foundation of our current opioid epidemic, mm -hmm. which is just mind-boggling that we killed nearly 100,000 people last year with drug overdoses. Oh, wow, 100,000? Mm -hmm. I did not know those numbers. It is huge, That's the huge. number of drug overdoses that occurred last year. And I think about 70% of those were from opioids. And we don't have the same opioid issue here in Texas mm -hmm. as, say, like Ohio Valley and those areas of the country. But it still is an immense problem here. And culturally, I guess that's the right word for it. <laughs> that sounds Maybe like it. Habitually, people's practice is because of the, that history of the pill mills, mm -hmm. people are, they, they, they go after pills. Well, those pills get made in illicit pill presses. They're not legitimately manufactured pills. They look like they are. Mm -hmm. So this is what we get in the lab. We get bags full of pills. They look like Adderalls. They look like Xanaxes. They look like Norcos. They look like Oxys. They aren't. They are some dude in a, you know, you rented garage with eBay pill presses, <laughs> cranking out pills that look spot on. Yeah. They have everything and anything under the sun in them. Yeah. Meth, fentanyl, carfentanil, benzodiazepines, strange benzodiazepines. Did I mention meth? <laughs> so we see a lot of pills that are yeah. all highly variable in what's in them. Definitely dangerous. Definitely dangerous. Well, usually dangerous. Yeah. So have y'all been able to like keep up with the crime rate going high? Uh, no. We're wow. drowning. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Plain and simple. We're, we're drowning. You're drowning? Uh, it is It is very difficult to keep up. So we, what steps are y'all taking to kind of keep up? <laughs> I mean, I know that y'all just uh, got like a machine. I think it's like the, I think it's called the rapid DNA testing machine. That's just one. Thing. There's, there's, there's one component. Yeah. It is. Certainly we are trying to do everything we can in terms of process improvement, in terms of trying to be as efficient as we can, trying to implement technologies where we can, things like rapid DNA, things like we've completely reformulated our toxicology unit and new equipment there. But fundamentally, even though we are probably one of the best resourced labs in the country, Resourcing of forensic laboratories in this country isn't missing percentages, it is missing zeros. We aren't even remotely close to the resourcing necessary for laboratories in this country to do what people think is being done, much less what should be getting done. And all of us across the whole country are struggling and losing ground. Also, we're not the only one. You said it's not the only no, one. It's no, all no, across no. the all board. across the country. All across the country. We are all losing ground. And that's due to COVID or just it's due to I mean COVID has made all of it just that much worse. Mm. But when you look that the entire federal budget for forensics 
keep in mind, forensic laboratories are largely a municipal, county, and state function. Adjudication of laws is a state's right and a state's responsibility. So most of the judicial system that we think of is a local entity. So mm -hmm. most of the funding comes from local. But when you look at the federal budget and you think about what that priority means at the federal level, the entire federal budget for forensics is $200 million a year. That's it. That's it. Three quarters of it is dedicated exclusively to DNA. So even though seized drugs, toxicology, firearms, latent prints make up far more of the actual casework flowing through laboratories, mm -hmm. there is no federal money available to offset, make investments in, help out municipalities, be able to fund it. Wow. Yeah, I see why. Right. See, and like I said, and I will happily tell any politician who might be listening to this, we're missing zeros um, off of that. How are you able to just thoroughly do your job? Because if you don't, that means it has a chain effect and other people suffer because of that. No kidding. <laughs> wow. This is the problem. <laughs> a big, no, huge problem. I mean, we, we are falling behind because of that. We do what we can, we, what we, where we're at, mm -hmm. mostly because laboratories are populated with a bunch of analysts who understand the consequences of this and work themselves bloody trying to keep up with what it is. We burn through people because they are making up for the fact that this is so wildly under-resourced. Yeah. Most people don't even understand what's going on. Nope. Wow. Wow. So I kind of wonder, I guess, with some of the analysts, is there any type of, like, uh, psyche test that, I guess, people have to go through, especially when I think of... You know, like the show CSI and, you know, they have to go in the field and they see these dead bodies. They see these crime scenes. And I can only imagine seeing this day to day and especially, you know, with everything rising, what they're seeing. Under this kind of pressure. Yeah, it's tough on people. Yeah. This is something that I worry about a lot with our staff. I, and we have seen this. Um, actually, NIJ, National Institute of Justice had a needs assessment that they were mandated to do with the reauthorization of the Justice for All Act about two years ago. And one of the items that they point to in that is the need for more um, vicarious trauma yeah. support and services for forensic science. We, and this is pretty much about the last five years that we are seeing a realization that forensic scientists are subject to um, compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, the impacts of this work as much as other first responders are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I would argue it's, it's not more, it's different because we ask of forensic scientists to work with nightmarish, awful people's worst days I mean, their work is bloody semen-soaked underwear and victim statements. All They're around the clock. All around the clock. And yet, as a forensic scientist, you are, it is demanded of you to compartmentalize that and view it objectively. This is stuff that is not objective. Yeah. And yet, we are 
by intention trying to do an objective job of evaluating that as a piece of evidence. And I think that is hard on people in ways that are different than a police officer or an EMT. Um, and I it, it's not exactly comparable. Uh, they are both very tough on people. They eat people alive. They leaves marks. So with you being at the top, like how have you kept everyone together and just made this tolerable and, you know. <laughs> I, I hope I have. Okay. I, I am I am not certain that we have, well, I'm certain that we haven't probably done enough. Yeah, it's I'm a process. I'm about being able to do more. Um, I hope we have created an environment that helps support staff that they understand that we've done what we can to keep them from flying apart at the seams. Yeah. I, time will tell, honestly. Yeah. Um, we have tried to establish peer support networks and I have counselors that we keep on retainer and we try to do as much as we can to help people understand you, you got to take care of yourself in this. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But forensic scientists across the country don't qualify because they aren't viewed as first responders in the same way that you know, your obvious first responders are. So we don't often qualify for some of the same kind of state infrastructure for vicarious trauma and things like that. Wow. Uh, so it can be a little difficult trying to find resources. It's also a little difficult. Um, kind of more typical employee assistance programs and things like that are geared more around divorce, family issues, which, you know, our people have. Yeah, of course. But it is a real issue of trying to find resources that are equipped to deal with. I just got back from my third homicide that had a beheading and they cut the guy's arms off and stuck him in the cabinet you take that to an employee assistance program, they aren't going to quite know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult to find trauma-informed resources that are equipped to deal with the level of nightmarish that our folks deal with. Yeah. Um, that's, that's not a common resource out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's completely... Wow. I, I don't really understand that, why the funding's different. Compared to, you said, like the EMT and the, uh, the police as well? This is the reality of forensics. It is nerds in the back closet that get forgotten. Yeah. So do you see any change in the future? Like, do you think that soon y'all be appreciated for what y'all do? <laughs> you know? Like, there may be something that kind of... I mean, you think really, even, I guess, with the TV show, you know... I'm, I'm just throwing something out there. You yeah. think that people would kind of just, you know, see things and it's like, look, this is what people go through. The, the popular media has changed the visibility. Mm -hmm. I think people at least have an understanding that this exists and it's something that's not the same as police. It's not the same as law enforcement. Um, I have joked for years that... Forensic science is usually viewed as a service for those who are arrested, convicted, or dead. Doing, you know, this, is, this is about 
their case. Which is very important. Well, I keep looking for the way to get politicians to understand, no, that is the smallest part of what a forensic laboratory is about. Really, okay. the forensic laboratory is one of the bulwarks that lets the justice system be believable so that the citizen that never goes anywhere near the criminal justice system gets to never go anywhere near the criminal justice system. Absolutely. It's what keeps the criminal justice system working. So without the laboratories producing that objective mm -hmm. evidence, the criminal justice system is precarious, yeah. which then means the person that never goes anywhere near it, you're going to get to go near it. <laughs> So dealing with the justice system, just kind of like you're mentioning, like, does it come up in court where, you know, kind of lawyers question the results of the evidence? All the time. Okay. And so how was that process of just kind of, you know, letting the courts know, like, this is accurate, as accurate as it can be? I'm not sure what the percentage well, is. Reality is the courts and the lawyers should question that's, that's the nature of what it's there. It, it should not be taken at face value that mm -hmm. the forensic evidence is correct. It's actually what's created a lot of the issues is people not questioning and not doing a good job of that audit function of ensuring that things were done yeah. correctly, of assuming the you know bald-headed nerdy guy with the glasses, <laughs> you know, whatever, he says big words, it must be right. Yeah. No, don't. No, yes. it, it should be questioned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not healthy for the entire system to just assume that that's correct and not question it. But the rest of the system is also struggling. Okay, great. We fund the crime laboratory. I produce all kinds of results. If the law enforcement investigators can't do something with those results, that doesn't help anybody. If the prosecutors can't actually have enough resources to prosecute the cases, that doesn't do anybody any good. Certainly doesn't do anybody good to not have adequate and competent defense counsel to make sure that things are done right. All of those parts of the system are wildly under-resourced. All of us pay for that without that being there. Wow. Yeah, so it, that And that makes me think just like, I guess, when people appeal, you know, certain verdicts mm -hmm. and then I guess y'all have to kind of go back in the lab and, you know, retest things, retest the evidence, I guess you want to say. Like, and my question is also as well, sorry, um, yeah. I guess kind of like once, you know, a verdict has came about, like, do y'all still keep all the evidence? Yeah. How many years? Pretty much forever. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it seems like, you know, that wouldn't even be enough space, you know? There, there is, there's a whole other area we could talk about is evidence management. Yeah, um, yeah. It is a huge challenge for everybody in the system because mm -hmm. there is a very real, very necessary obligation to protect that evidence. Mm -hmm all kinds of aspects to this. So within the laboratory, we are very careful about all of our policies that we work really hard not to consume all of the evidence. We've learned those lessons the hard way of yeah. having consumed evidence, then 
there's nothing there for somebody to retest when questions arise about what happened. There's also nothing left there 10 years from now when mm-hmm. technologies have evolved and may be able to come up with a different answer. Part of the impact of DNA is because evidence remain from cases long ago that now DNA technologies could be applied to that didn't exist decades ago. And it has made an enormous difference in a lot of people's lives. So you have to expect there's going to be technologies decades from now that none of us can predict what they're going to be that are going to change results that happen now. That evidence has to get preserved. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's a mountain of stuff. Mountain. And how do you keep the stuff that's relevant, the stuff that's pertinent, the stuff that's important, mm-hmm. and get rid of the stuff that's not? Yeah. And that was one of the like one of the things that I mentioned earlier was the rapid DNA mm-hmm. um, machine that y'all have. And I know that uh, with that machine, when you use it, it pretty much uses pretty much the whole part of the DNA. So I guess my question would be is how do you know when to use that machine? Because (laughs) once you use it for that, then it's gone. And so then you can't revisit. So how do you all? Yeah, rapid DNA is actually, I think, a really good example of the challenge of new technologies that, yes, they have an enormous promise. They Mm -hmm. they can do marvelous things. And rapid DNA really, I I know I have been quoted in a lot of articles, and I, I think I am often the, the the critic of rapid DNA is wrong. No, it's really not. It's actually a very beneficial technology. Okay, how's that? All depends on how it gets used. Because these technologies, none of them are simply and purely beneficial. They all have consequences. Rapid DNA, mm-hmm. really good example. Mm-hmm. Yes, it can be very quickly produce a result. You're right. The instrument consumes that swab. So I don't have something that I can retest. Okay, I can collect two swabs, but merely by swabbing, I'm going after trace amounts of DNA. One swab to the next swab is not necessarily going to be the same because if I adequately swab, I've swabbed up most everything. So I come back with another swab, it's not going to be the same as that first swab. How do you split the difference? Um, how do I protect those data? How do I ensure that those data are used appropriately? How do I ensure that those data and the limitations around what that instrument has done are reflected and used appropriately? That's the challenge with it. Yeah. And how long have y'all had this? Uh, um, so here in Houston, there was a pilot that started, so that was about three years ago. Um, and it, it kind of went a little sideways, um, for a variety of reasons, not that anybody was out trying to do the wrong thing, but it became evident that it is a real challenge of how do you ensure that evidence is handled appropriately without it being at risk of being destroyed? Uh, how do you ensure that data are protected, that everybody's got access to the data, or how did that original pilot some of the things that we kind of stubbed our toe on. So that basically stopped with that pilot, and the desire and the 
the potential benefit of rapid DNA obviously is still there. So from that, we said, okay, fine, we'll get an instrument and worked with the other company. There's really only two companies that make these rapid instruments. We'll work with the other company was the one that was agreeable to this of doing a more extensive validation here in the laboratory to do all of those parts that kind of didn't get done with the pilot to ensure how we, how the data are valid. So we've about finished that part. We don't we haven't actually started using it in a casework yet because we've been working in the last year on that validation effort. Um, so as we start to put it into use on casework in probably the coming months, I think somewhere in the fall here we'll, we'll about be done with the validation. There are those places, in part based on all of the validation work that we've done, what kinds of samples would be appropriate to use this on. A lot of that is that there is sufficient DNA expected to be there that the fact that I've swapped up some of it, put it in the instrument, and it's gone now, isn't going to compromise the remaining, that there's enough DNA left to be able to do something else with. So it's things like blood stains. It's things where I know I'm going to have more DNA present. Um, that's the kind of stuff that's more eligible for it, not a swab of, you know, a bottle top, things where it's much more trace quantities of DNA that once I've swabbed it, if I use that swab, I don't have anything else. Um, places where I'm less expecting a mixture because the instruments don't handle mixtures of multiple people. So if I swap this top of this table, you know, there's dozens of people through this room. All of them leave their DNA behind. I swap this table, I'm going to get a mixture of many multiple people. Yeah. The instrument's not very good at teasing apart all of those. Okay. And one thing that I read, uh, something that y'all do here, is with the, uh, the blind quality control. And I know y'all have a lot of success with that. Can you kind of explain? We, we get a lot of attention for our blind quality control stuff. Yeah. Can you explain, I guess, that process? Yep. Um, short answer. Short answer <laughs> is it's the forensic secret shopper. Forensic? Okay. It is we manufacture materials to look like cases, but we know what the answer is. And then we stick it into the process so that an analyst doesn't know, am I handling an actual case or am mm -hmm. I handling one of these manufactured things that somebody knows the answer of? And we target about 5% of our output being blinded testing. Mm -hmm. Another aspect of it where we take, like in latent prints of firearms, first analyst does their evaluation of it, and then we give that piece of evidence to another analyst. Second analyst has no idea what the first analyst did, mm -hmm. and then we look at do they get to the same conclusion without knowing what each other did. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of fundamentally, it's you know, the secret chopper. It's a constant test of the entire system. So unlike open proficiencies, which we do as well, which mm -hmm. are good at testing the analytical step and then giving us something that's a consistent material to be able to compare ourselves to other laboratories, blinds let you test from the point at which the evidence comes into the system to the point at which the report goes out. So did the correct piece of evidence actually make it where it was supposed to? Did the result end up on the report as it was supposed to? Did all the chain of custody steps happen as they were supposed to? That's what blinds help give you 
a test of is the entire system. Yeah, that definitely helps because I can only imagine there's probably some type of biasness within the testing that y'all probably have to do. We, we have human brains that are doing this stuff. Yeah. Human brains are bias machines. We, we don't live in the environment without our brains being able to take shortcuts. Shortcuts have another name. It's called biases. That's how it works. That's how we're wired up. It's yeah. not a bad thing. Bias is not a bad word. It is just a description of the fact that's how the human brain works. So, yes. Shortcuts. Right. Shortcuts that's, that's, aren't always good as well. They Shortcuts can end up in short circuits. <laughs> I've never heard that, but now I'm going to use it. <laughs> I have never heard that, it's, but it's, yeah. But tell my kids that. <laughs> it's, it's how it works. You have to mm-hmm. engineer the systems in order to understand the fact that that's how human brains work. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're perfectly flawed. Yeah, and I can only imagine, you know, like the pressure you have to deal with, uh, you know, within this industry, you know, especially that we're humans and all the amount of work that's going on. Um, and I know that we're kind of like with Texas, that is, mm-hmm. uh, they have the new gun law coming in like next month. We're looking forward to that. Yeah. <clears throat> I was going to ask, like, do you, I mean, if you had to guess, you know, it there's is, no telling. Yes, it is purely a guess. I am really not sure what that's going to mean for us. Yeah. Um, I know some people worry. Some people are happy, of course. That's all. Looking at it from the perp- from the standpoint of the laboratory and how we plan for and try to adapt to the changes in workforce, I'm not really sure what it's going to mean. I don't know if it's going to mean fewer guns that we're dealing with mm-hmm. or more. I, I best hunch we have, and it is purely a hunch, is early on it is likely to end up with more guns coming to us simply because people probably aren't going to understand, okay, I don't need a license, but that doesn't mean that it's lawful to carry that weapon anywhere and everywhere. And because they don't understand some of the nuances of that seems reasonable to expect, we're going to have more unlawful carry kinds of charges initially, which means I'm going to get more guns early on because we get, and you have to keep this in mind in the laboratory, I'm not the one out there arresting people. I get what comes to us from law enforcement. So it all depends on how law enforcement goes about enforcing these things. But you could see a increase in unlawful carry because people don't understand where, yes, they don't need a license, but they still can't carry a weapon there. It's not unlawful to have the weapon. It's unlawful to have the weapon there. And yeah. that is the circumstance that ends up with me having the gun to enter it into the knifing system. Um, but will that be the overall pattern? I don't know. I, I really don't know if that's going to mean more guns or less force. We see the number of guns that comes to us has gone up immensely in the last couple of years. Uh, it has really put a strain on us trying to keep up with the number of guns that we received to process and enter into the database. I can only imagine that. We're, 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 we're batting about 600 guns a month now, whereas a couple of years ago it was about 300. It has basically doubled in the last 12 to 24 months. Yeah. It's a lot of guns. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a lot of guns. Definitely a lot of guns. Um, this question is probably like a little off subject, but have you really um, ever been one of the analysts like 
analysts in the field and kind of like, or even with your job, have you gone to a crime scene and kind have, of scene? Yep, I've gone to crime scenes. I go out to crime scenes every so often with crime with our crime scene folks. My training is as a toxicologist. My PhD is in toxicology. So right. my work really was more laboratory based. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's been a while since I've been the one, you know, mixing stuff up in test tubes and doing data reviews <laughs> and signing reports. But mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I've done all of that. I'm, you know, testified about results, but it's because that's my background is toxicology. That's really the discipline that I come to this from. So is there anything I guess you can tell from your experience that most people wouldn't know about like that whole event with, you know, in the field, you know, examining stuff like for curious minds, because, you know, <laughs> some people, you know, are just kind of really curious and they find it very cool. Just yep, I do. Um, there are all kinds of crime scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what crime laboratories get, everybody thinks about the crime scene like, you know, the shooting, the robbery, but getting stopped for a DUI and pulling over a DUI, that is effectively a crime scene. Um, child pornography on a cell phone, that's effectively a crime scene. This is, you know, there's your crime scene, is that cell phone. If you think about what where that crime is, it can be a lot of different places. So this is part of the challenge for crime laboratories is wildly different reasons that evidence comes to us, not just, you know, the back alley where somebody got shot. Um, Those kinds of crime scenes, what I would tell people about those is wild variation associated with it. It is everything even possibly imaginable and then some. And it is always chaotic. It is always unpredictable. It is always imperfect. And that's just, you can't control that. I mean, what are you going to control about standing in the dumpster trying to find stuff Mm -hmm. at 2 a.m. in the rain? Like there's anything predictable about that. (laughs) So I got just one more question for you. Um, being within your position, CEO and being president, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned so far? Biggest I, lesson? I know that's a, a lot to think about because <laughs> you've been, what, for six years. So I guess what, if you had to tell, you know, give any advice to, you know, someone who is coming into a you know horrible situation like how Houston was, like if you had to mentor them, what would be something that, be some good advice to tell them. There's there's a few executive aphorisms that have stuck with me over the years. One is nose in, fingers out. No idea where I heard that one, but basically work really hard to understand and listen to what I mean, I've got 200 really smart people, mm-hmm. really dedicated, really smart people. They, they, they can figure stuff out. Yeah. I use a different word in there, but I'm Navy. <laughs> um, figure out how to listen to them and get out of the way. <laughs> Keep your fingers out of it. Okay. Don't overmanage them. Yeah. Yeah. Be there to support them and listen and get out of the way. Some good advice. The other is, and it sounds awful, 
but slow to hire, quick to fire. Again, don't really remember where I heard that one. And it sounds mean, but really it's not. Number of times over the years that I have found myself desperate because we're shorthanded and we hire somebody too quick, who's really not a fit. And the difficulty that that creates. Yeah. And I find, I tell a lot of the managers here is don't, don't take, take your time. If it's not a hell yes, it's a no. Hire the right person for it, in particularly in this work, because this crap's hard. Yeah. It is enormously gratifying work, but it is hard, like few things are hard. Not everybody's really wired up to do it. And take your time hiring them. And if it's not right, let them set them free as quickly as you can. It's better for the group. It's better for them. I can only imagine it's difficult to find people because it is. Yeah, it is. the training is long. Or yes. I'm not sure what the back are, you know, the requirements to keep within this field, but yeah, yeah, I can only imagine that's hard. Um, there's there's a huge amount of interest. Mm -hmm. If we put out job openings for educational credentialing, and we look for at least a bachelor's in science and everything and minimal experience, we will get 400 resumes for almost any position we put out there in eight hours. It's huge interest, but out of that, people that are actually geared up for understand what they're taking on with this are willing and able to deal with this work for years very small fraction of that and so when we look for experienced analysts that are as close as you're going to get to somebody that can actually hit the ground running that those are very hard to find very hard to find absolutely don't come too easily no just probably like it's sports reference very hard to find a quarterback so yeah. you can only imagine how hard it is yeah to it, find someone for this job and Certainly some aspects I'm seeing is that way. Uh, it's difficult. It is a really careful balance of people having enough experience to be really good at it and not having too much experience and the, the, the damage that comes with that. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Stout, I really want to thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Certainly. To interview, uh, you know, I've definitely been wanting to talk to you for a long time, been interested. And so, you know, it's a great pleasure to have you here. I'm pretty sure it's a great pleasure for everybody to listen to you and to, you know, gain some knowledge about what's going on. Well, you know. I'm happy to chat about it. I, I'm, I am a I'm a zealot about this stuff. So you get me going. I'm prone to ranty. <laughs> no, I welcome it. I welcome it. You know, this is why I started this. I welcome everything. I like to learn. Um, and so. You know, I like to share as well. Two birds, one stone. But yeah, thank you for coming out. Uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate it.